Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And today, 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 you're in for a treat. I actually got to speak to a lovely dude called Chris Tate. Now, he's been trading in the markets, so not real estate, everything from gold to shares, commodities, you name it. He's been, he's been a market man since the early 20s, 20s and he jumped on today to talk to us a little bit about not only his story about how he went from being a bouncer to an academic and then realized that academics are never going to buy Porsches and he wanted to try and get a little bit more out of life, including getting his time back. We talked about that journey, how to approach investing. We looked at it from, uh, from both sides of the fence, real estate, shares or you know all of that kind of stuff and how to approach different markets at different time frames the mindset you need for that we talked about some of the fundamental principles around investing in any asset class we talked about yield versus growth and what role they play in a portfolio we also um, talked about how you know some of Chris's yoga habits come through into his investing strategy using being the pause. We spoke about heaps of really good stuff. I actually got a lot out of this. Now, one of the things that you're going to pick up throughout this uh, episode is that the greatest defining factor of success, whether it be in real estate or shares or gold or whatever whatever you want to invest in, it's going to be control and discipline. And it's really good to get someone's uh, someone else's perspective on that, someone who's ridden the waves through multiple market cycles and, and seen a lot and done a lot. Now, of course, if you are interested in this, in, in more of this, and you, want to, and you want to learn more from us and want to learn more, obviously, we specialize in focusing on the real estate market. And Chris is obviously focusing on shares and commodities and all of that kind of stuff. So there's a little bit of differentiation there. But I think, I think getting balance in the conversation is critically important because I, I genuinely believe that the key to wealth is to have a, a chocolate box of opportunity that is serving you at your highest needs. Um, and I'm sure that you're going to get a lot out of this, this episode. But if you want to find out more about how we can help you with real estate, then just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's loads of free resources there, guides. You can get a copy of my book. Um, there's, you can even reach out to us directly uh, if you want help to invest in your next investment property. Just head to dashdot.com.au forward slash discovery and you can book in a call with little old me. Or if not me, maybe one of the team. But um, in any case, I'm confident that when you get through this episode, you're going to pick up a lot. It's, it's, it's an honor to be able to pick the brains of someone who has been there and done that through so many different cycles. And, and if you're listening carefully, I'm certain that you're going to pick up uh, different ideas that are going to impact you in your personal wealth creation journey, your investing strategies, and generally how you're going to approach life. So good luck, have fun. And of course, if you enjoy it, make sure you like, rate, review, share, comment, do all of that kind of stuff and um, let us know what you think. And if you want more of this kind of stuff, then we're here to surf. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. So joining me today is Chris Tate. Now he's a trading expert. He um, has a podcast called Talking Trading and he also runs the trading game. So he's, he's extremely experienced in trading in multiple markets, multiple asset classes, multiple timeframes, multiple uh, arenas, multiple different dimensions of trading capacities and all of that kind of stuff. And so I thought it would be a very fascinating... Uh, and scintillating conversation to be able to um, get Chris on the show and to be able to share with you some insights of having traded, again, multiple assets, multiple industries, uh, multiple times uh, through economic cycles o- over the years and see how we can apply some of that uh, knowledge and methodology and thinking to navigating today's environment. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hope I can live up to the intro. <laughs> well, mate, we just we were just talking before the podcast started. I'm very confident we're going to do that. But look, I know a little bit about your story, okay? But we've got to assume that no one else listening to our podcast has any idea who you are, what you do, or why you're here, or why the hell they should listen to you. So, do you want to give us a little bit of a backstory and just give us a get everyone up to speed? Okay, my bio is a little bit of an odd one. I'm one of those people who's ended up at a point in time and space where I didn't actually set out to be. 
I didn't set out to be someone who traded markets. In actual fact, going through university and academia, I had no interest in business whatsoever until I actually realised how little money there was in academia and how annoying lecturing to first-year students was. And whilst I was beavering away at university, working on problems that I thought were really interesting, uh, I was going through that thing of universities are full of politics. They're not full of money, which is really problematic when you're applying for grants. And you spend a lot of your time doing hack work. And I, I'd ha I had a circle of friends who were doing sort of financy business things. And ever so slowly, I did some consulting work for biotech firms because biotech firms were big when I was at university. And I, I slowly meandered into the field of investing, started trading my own account, started trading during the 80s bull market, made a lot of money and thought I was a genius, not realising that everybody makes a lot of money in a bull market, which was a little bit of a shock to the ego. And I thought, mm, how can I learn about trading? Stockbrokers know about trading. I'll see if I can score myself a job there. And I managed to talk my way in, and I managed to talk my way in simply on the strength of the fact that I could add and subtract and draw a graph, because at that point in time, stockbrokers <laughs> were, were really poorly trained. In fact, they had no training at all. And I realised this because when I walked in, the bloke sitting opposite me had been selling carpet two weeks earlier, and the bloke wow. sitting next to me had been selling shoes. Wow. And, and the thing you need to realise is that stockbrokers, even now that there is an academic requirement and the, the legislation has changed, all they do is sell you a second-hand good and the second-hand good is a share. And so stockbroking is primarily a sales profession. And stockbroking was quite good to me. I, I had access to all the information I wanted to, that I could ever possibly need, all the data I could ever possibly need. Uh, I appeared at a time when derivatives in the form of options were taking off and that attracted my interest simply because I came from a reasonably quantitative background. And I, I left broking in my very early 30s and was able to sort of, look, I'll call it a sabbatical because I don't like the word retirement because that, that, that implies that you buy a Volvo, put one of those funny white hats on your head and go and play bowls every afternoon with all the other old buggers. Mm. And... A few years into being comfortably ensconced in doing not really all that much other than I would occasionally lecture, occasionally do expert witness work for people involved in generally suing brokers for poor advice, poor trading strategies, silly ideas. And I ran into my now business partner at a lecture we were both giving and she would occasionally ring me up and go, I'm bored seeing at home trading by myself and I would go, yeah, I'm not really not that bored, actually. Uh, I quite like being by myself. And, and over time, we did some little projects together. And about 21 years ago, we founded the trading game as a, what's the word they now use? A side hustle. Nice. It's something you do on the side and keep us both occupied and interested. And I, I still class myself as being on sabbatical, as That's being in semi-retirement. Nice, that's good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grill you with a few questions because I'm, I'm intrigued, right? So, I, I happen to know that you were a former bouncer. Correct. Was that before the academia? That that was paying for uh, going through university and grad school. Okay, so you and remind me again, the, what was your academic profession? Immunology. My gig was the study of the human immune system. Okay. So you started out as a bouncer whilst you were at uni studying to become, yes. an, to become an academic. I'm sure we'll circle back to that. That's totally fine. You, you studied to become an immunologist and, if, and then you became a, a, a lecturer, a, a teacher. Did all that stuff. All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you realized that, if you're, gonna, that you're never going to actually get what you want out of life aside from uh, mental stimulation and, and mental foreplay by being in that field. And so you started yeah. to look for something else. Look, right? you, you're never going to buy a Porsche as an academic. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and uh, the situation is even worse now. What people don't realise is that the majority of academics are casual employees who don't know their hours until the term begins. Add into that, back in my day, we had that sort of uh, pressure to publish in that you had to write journals at the same time. You had to have a teaching load. It was a right pain in the backside. And when I looked at the lives other people were leading, I went, 
well, this has really got knobs on it. Totally. I'm actually thinking one of my best friends, he's been my friend since kindergarten. Ben, when you listen to this, I'm talking about you. He's in a very similar, he's, 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 um, he's got a desire for academia and he's teaching and stuff like that, but he's around about that age. So, it's not what people think it is. <laughs> no, he talks to me about his, it's, his it's workload. Not. I'm like, whoa. So, okay, so bouncer, immunology, and then you were like, okay, never going to buy a Porsche. There's got to be more to life than this. Um, I can get my mental stimulation in a variety of different ways. So then you went and started investing. You rode the bull market up. When did you start investing? Was that the start of the 80s, mid-80s? Start of the 80s, about 1982, okay. which really does date me. What did you get into first, actually, if you, don't, if you, can, if you remember? I, 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 actually, I actually bought – uh, I have vivid memories of this. I actually bought a gold stock called Astro Mining. And I bought, started buying them at 30 cents and eventually ended up selling them at $5 nice. and thought, I have a gift. <laughs> Little did I know that all boats float on a rising tide. And that was a little bit of a rude shock. Uh, I, I, I bet. Can I, I'm going to go all over the place here. So I hope, right. you can, hope you can stick with me. When you bought that gold stock, why did you buy it? Did you buy it because it was paying good dividends or did you buy it because you thought it was going to go up in a growth perspective? Yeah. I, I've always been of the notion that you only ever buy things because you think they're going to go up in value. Hmm. I, I've never been a, a yield player at all it, simply because, well, I have a little bit of a short-term attention problem in that I don't like sitting around for six months for each dividend cycle to come along. Dividends play a part in some of the things I do, but it's not the driver. My driver is I want to buy something at one and sell it at a multiple of one sometime, sometime in the future. But it's also I have some control over that because I can decide either to buy more or to exit. I've got no control whatsoever over things like yield. If we, we have a situation like we've got now where companies are cutting dividends and that's really causing problems for retirees, the retirees have no control over that. Yeah, they can go to the annual general meeting and eat the biscuits and have the shitty coffee and whinge about the directors, but they can't actually do anything about the, the direction they're going in. And I'm one that my, my view is you're the hero of your own story so write your own story. And I think people trip up on that. People feel like the hero of their own story, but they don't want to write their own story. They feel far more comfortable having other people writing it for them. And this is why I think COVID has caused so many problems for people, not only financially, but emotionally and psychologically, because people ran their lives on being told what to do, when to go to work, how many hours you work, when the tea break is, what you can wear. All of a sudden, that's gone, and people are left hanging. And if you want to make people upset or anxious or you know, off kilter, remove their autonomy, remove that yeah. structure that they're used to working within. And once that structure's gone, people flail about. I love having my own structure. Always have. Yeah, I I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree. It was funny when I first met my partner Gabby. You know, it's pretty wild. Let's just say that. The, the very least. Um, and she was shocked when I said one of my favorite, no, no, I, I just love routine. I love, I love having a structure. I love structures because when you've got things in structures, you can understand them on a model basis and you can measure the return, whatever the return may be. Like yes. if I eat too many meals, do I get fat? Do I, if I save more money, do I have more, you know, like you can create models, right? And that gives you, without measuring something against something, then you will never, ever know if you've actually done anything. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the old thing. What can be measured can be managed. 100%. And if there's no measurement, then how, how do you know it's working? Totally, totally. It's, and it, it, so just going back to the um, – going back to the – so you're, you're, a, you're a growth-based investor and I think that it's an interesting point. So obviously a lot of our listeners are – well, a lot of our listeners invest in multiple asset classes, but primarily um, they're listening to, to, to this podcast because they uh, invest in real estate. Now – I agree with you uh, from that perspective. There's no point chasing yields uh, in stocks and stuff like that, I think. But it's a little different from my perspective. I'd love to get your take on it in real estate as an asset class. And we can talk about that in a moment as well. Partly because of the leverage. So the reality is most people get um, get 80% loans on on a property or something to that effect. So therefore, the cost the cost of holding the asset is, is, is significant, which means that in order for it to not be... Uh, 
a liability within a portfolio, it's got to at least cover all of its own costs and expenses. Yeah. And this is, I suppose, in part where there's a little bit of divergence between real estate and what I do. Yeah. Because one of the things that has always attracted me to investing, when, when I bought this house, one of the things that drove me nuts was how slow the process was and how labour-intensive it was. I, I stood out front at the auction and I was the last peanut with my hand up. We wandered inside and I seemed to spend the next 14 hours signing paperwork. And I said, so is it mine? And they went, yeah, it's yours in 90 days. Oh, crap. Yeah, all right. Oh, stamp duty. God, yeah, I've got to pay the government to actually buy something. Well, that's a pain. Mine, mine's a very... My industry is frictionless in that respect. Hmm. And so there is a different psychology applied in that when, you, when you've got a massive holding cost, you've got to somehow defray that. that that's got to somehow be brought down. Hmm. And because of the associated costs with real estate, valid point. My, my industry has, unless you're geared, zero holding costs and virtually zero transaction costs. Uh, one, one of the things I always feel sorry for with new home buyers is they save the deposit up and then they forget about the stamp duty, yeah, which is no, just, right. just a rip-off. Like it's just – and what, what do you get for stamp duty? You literally get a stamp. It must yeah. be the world's most expensive stamp. I know. It's literally bump. That's it. Yeah, and, and, and then when you want your title back, they've lost it. I think, I think it's so funny just even like with just talking about titles. My parents uh, recently paid off their house, right? And so they've – so someone's got their physical title, right, yes. their actual title, like a bit of paper about this big. About If you can't see the video, it's, you know, it's, it's a basically smaller than an A4 sheet of paper. That's your title. And the title sits somewhere. Your house and your land, none of that means anything. It's it's a bit of yeah. paper. If you lose the bit of paper, you're stuffed. You, you, you are in a world of hurt if it's you a, lose the piece of paper. I know. It's like all it is is a bit of paper. That's the only thing that holds value in a property. And I, I think that's fascinating. And I think obviously, um, as you said, like so your industry, so we're talking shares and trading and stuff like that, obviously is um, you're talking lower leverage, lower friction, uh, uh, more liquidity and all of that kind of stuff. And that's, I guess, the age-old dichotomy between real estate and shares. I mean, I mean, for the record as well, I'm not a, I'm not a bulldog in, in, in the fact that I think that real estate is the only way uh, for people to get ahead. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe that everyone needs to, there needs to be balance between business, shares, property, all of that kind of stuff. But obviously, leverage plays a, a, both a good and a bad role in real yeah. estate. But I also think it's it's understanding what the asset class can do for you. Yeah. For for example, in the past, in the past, let's say ten years. Now, let's say since the GFC, let's call it eleven. Make it an odd number. The asset class of choice in Australia has been real estate. That's simply the way it is. But the asset class of choice for people like me has been the U.S. stock market. If we go back before the GFC, the asset class of choice in Australia were shares and the asset class of choice in the US was real estate, which is how we got into the mess of the GFC. Mm. So it's understanding which one works at which time and how you actually marry them together. And, and everything is that. You need to understand where you are, what your capabilities are and what, what will do the job for you as opposed to just rocking along to a real estate seminar one weekend and some lunatic says, you all need to do developments, whereabouts, country Victoria. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. But, but it mine, good. no, hang on, hang on a second. It, no, it probably, I've been to a lot of these seminars and I can say with a very high degree of confidence that every single one of those strategies will work for someone. For someone, there's the, there's the, there's, there's the qualifier. There's it's, the qualifier. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like my business partner and I were sitting in a cafe well, two, three years ago now, and we were listening to a young girl talk to a friend of hers saying, you've got to buy Bitcoin. It's going to a million dollars. Everybody's making a fortune. Somebody made a fortune, but it was not those two girls sitting at that table there and then. Have you checked back in with them? No. Probably, probably because I don't. 
they're living under a bridge somewhere. I don't. <laughs> as as most people who Bitcoin, who, bought, who bought Bitcoin are, a lot of people have done really well out of it. You know, there's there there a lot of people have done really well out of it, and there's a whole look. That's a whole world that I don't understand. I'm not going to pretend to. Um, but I can tell you. But I remember years ago, must have been about 15, oh, seven, seven, eight years ago. Um, I had the opportunity to buy a Bitcoin miner. Uh, ah, right for yes. twelve for twelve hundred bucks. Yeah, for twelve hundred bucks, and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm Maybe, not really sure. Nah. Oh my god! Oh my god! Now I do slightly regret that in hindsight, but hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So it's a, it's a little bit like there is a guy in the US who uh, Bitcoin. Your investment in Bitcoin is locked with the key. Yeah, and it's locked to a hard drive. He recycled his PC and threw his hard drive out. His hard drive at that stage was worth about 260 million US. Yeah. He went through an entire dump to find it, couldn't find it. Yep. And it's just gone. Gone. I know, right? It's digital. It's a little bit like your house title. If your house title's gone, nah. you've got problems. You've got a big issue, big issue. Okay. So, look, Chris, you've invested, you started investing in the 80s, you started in gold, right? And then, as you said, in the 90s or, or pre, 90s, pre GFC anyway, yeah. there, there, there were, you know, the asset of choice was shares, and there, and then in the last sort of eleven years, it's been the asset of class of choice in in Australia. So for Australian people, is property. How do you, how do you, how do you navigate different market cycles and different market conditions, and how do you, how do you identify um, what is going to be the predominantly most beneficial and and greatest opportunity yeah. in those different markets and and how can you share some is like are there any kind of fundamentals that you look for like what can you, how can you guide our yeah. listeners on this it, it, it's actually a good question and <clears throat> it, it's something people try and make really really hard and this, this is one of my beefs with the investment industry the investment industry per se tries to convey this impression that it's far too hard for you it's best left to us experts Experts in investing, that is, brokers, fund managers, financial planners, know nothing about investing, which comes as a shock to people. Mm. In the past, what, 20-odd years, the Australian superannuation industry has taken, forget the ex exact figure, it's several billion in fees to deliver really not much of a return. Someone's gotten wealthy, it's not them. But... It's in terms of picking where to be, few few things to note. It's what suits you. So it's idiosyncratic to you. It's no point me sitting here and saying, look, shares in Japan, fabulous, going really, really well. If that makes you uncomfortable or you don't feel you have the knowledge or the access to these things. So we come back to what suits, because what suits will work for you because you can make it work because it is your game. In terms of the bigger picture, it's really quite simple. For me, it is, and this is going to sound ridiculously simple, I operate what's, I run a scan over markets for my equities once a week, and I only do it once a week, do it on Sunday, and it will generate a list of candidates. If that list of candidates is 20 for the US and two for here, and that pattern repeats over and over and over again, that's telling me a story. Now, I can do slightly more complicated things like look at the normalised return between the two markets, and I'll see that US market's going up and we're going flat. But it's really as simple as looking at what, what am I being told? What, what, what's telling me a story? For example, if, you're, you know, if the thing you hear about all the time is real estate, then that's the asset of choice at that point in time because that's where the investor interest is. And it's investor interest that drives these things. If I'd been in the US over the past 11 years, the conversation would have been about trading the share market. It would not have been about real estate because the US real estate market was shattered during the GSC. And so it's, it's really quite simple. People want to make it hard. And you can make investing in anything as hard as you want, but, but, but you again, can also make just, it as easy as you want. Just to, just to interject there, it's, it's interesting though, because as you say, like, oh, maybe the, maybe the sentiment has shifted, but maybe in, so let's talk about the US market. You said that real estate, you know, was shattered and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, from my perspective, I know lots of people. I know that the whole investing scene in real estate in the US is huge, but it changed. Um, it yes, it flipped. 
it flipped yeah. it flipped it flipped to a yield market right and this is yes. i think i think this is one of the biggest <laughs> distinctions is that um people don't understand that that this is how like for example bonds Right, when bond yields are high, the value is a little lower, and all you know. And when the value is high, the yields a little it's lower, and, yeah. you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, nothing, nothing inherently bad when, like, you, you know, real estate in America is not broken. It's just not a growth asset. It's a yield asset. Yeah, it's just sitting stagnant. So it's not the asset of choice for people who want to create wealth. And we we come back to that thing of. You also have to distinguish what do you consider to be wealth creation? Is wealth creation for you supplementing your income, setting up for retirement, or is it asset accumulation at this point in time? And so we, we always default back to what do you want to do? Again, what, what is your narrative that you're following? And that and I don't I don't know whether you find that when you when you ask people what are you passionate about what are you passionate about in the future they go I'm going to the pub on Friday you know that's that's not quite what we're after what 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 is the thing that floats your boat that, that you want to do and then you work backwards from there and go well how am I going to do it and it, it, you then pick the vehicle or the pathway that works for you. I've met people who are brilliant at real estate, absolutely rubbish at any other form of investing. Mm. And I see them do things like, you know, they'll buy a business, they'll buy a restaurant, buy a cafe, and they all go belly up. Yep. Because their gift is real estate, but they can't, they can't accept that. I've met people who are brilliant at shares, but who invest in exotic cars and who also buy business and other things. And you go, what are you doing? It's not it's not your fastball. It's not your game. You can learn it. You can learn it like anything. You can learn, and I think it's it's a really interesting point that you've touched on there. I mean, look for for me on a personal level, as a personal human being, my knowledge uh, and specialization, and the re- the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is in real estate, right? Because I can understand strategies very well and help guide people through that process. But the two asset classes, the two asset classes that I'm most heavily invested in, business. Right and real estate. Yes. So and and shares are great, but I just don't know anything about. It. I'm not going to go and start throwing money at it until until and unless I can get to a point where I can invest. You know, I've invested a lot of time, money, and energy to understand real estate. Until I can get to a point where I can do the same thing with with the markets, yes. then I, you know, like I just I'd, I'd have to be honest with myself. I'm having a punt. That you come back. It- You've used two really important words, time and energy. One of the problems I have, one of the problems we face in my business is that people will make the decision on the weekend, having watched the 1980s film Wall Street and the follow-on version, which was made a few years ago, and thought, how hard could it be? It looks really easy on TV. And they think, I'll start trading on Monday, Wednesday I'll buy a Porsche, Friday, South of France, no worries. And it, it's that thing where people don't want to put in time and energy because they, they don't realise that the payoff is asymmetric. The more time, more energy you put into something, the larger in terms of order of magnitude the payoff is for you. It's a, li- it's a little bit like my gym. When my gym was open, because no gyms are open again, they, they'd have these little posters, you know, and they started off as a 14-week program. Then they went to 12. Then they went to 10. Last one was an eight-week program for, you know, I, I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do in eight weeks. I, I really don't know. But it was a reflection of the fact that people simply don't want to put the time and effort in to mm. doing things. They want this instant fix, this instant result. And I think that applies to all areas of life where people just want something. I'll use another example, back pain. Back pain is one of the most chronic and debilitating things that affects Western society. Most back pain is classified as non-specific. You can't actually put it down to a cause. It seems to be just one of those things that afflicts us. Probably a combination of lifestyle, lack of exercise, poor posture, maybe some mechanical issue somewhere, maybe. What's the cure? The cure is time graduated exercise, what's the first thing people reach for? 
something out of the cupboard, a pill. Yeah. That's the first thing I'm up for, even though it doesn't work. And, and again, it's that thing, if you put in the time, you let the time pass, you put in the effort in terms of the rehabilitation, getting stronger, getting mobile, and getting over that initial hump of, dear God, this really hurts, then you actually get a payoff. But people would much rather go, oh, what's in the medicine cabinet I could take? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's really interesting because when you look at time, energy, and money, right? Most people think that they're sort of equal, like time is money and all of this kind of stuff. No. It's ridiculous. I, I, learned, <laughs> I, I learned years ago, money, money is the only commodity in the world that you can always get more of, right? It's the only one, certainly, maybe you can correct me, but as far as I understand, it is the single only commodity in the world that you can always get more of, whereas time and energy are finite resources. Yeah, time's arrow flies in only one direction and the clock's ticking for all of us. And, and money, money in terms of learning is not a necessity because we have a thing now called the internet. We, have a thing, we still have a thing called libraries mm. which are chocked full of wonderful, wonderful things called books which you just have to take the time to read and you just have to take the time to sit there and read them with a notepad so that you write things down. Yeah. And that's, that, I think, catches people. Yeah, look, the internet's a problem in that there's so much crap out there. But it doesn't take much common sense to go, yeah, that looks like rubbish. Well, that is rubbish. Well, that, that, that sounds sensible. And if it sounds sensible, guess what? It probably is. So your time and energy have this enormous payoff that people don't understand. Yeah. But they just they can't get over their own inertia. It look, to be blunt, most people can't get off their own ass, and that's problematic. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So, yeah, I yeah, it's that's I think one of the greatest afflictions is that uh, that inertia that you got to try and break people through. And as I, I always say to our clients, it's like you know, for example, real estate's not real estate's not a dark art. Like it's not black magic. It's um, it's it's maths, science, and logic. And if it doesn't make logical sense, then it probably isn't something that you should do. Like it's that yeah. it's that simple. And it's the same in my business. People think it is this immensely deep, opaque thing that you you know you need to have a degree in economics or quantitative finance or you need an MBA. Yeah, no, it's not. If you've managed to get dressed in the right order so that your underpants are not on the outside then you're smart enough to invest because you understand a sense of order, that things go in order. And that's all, it ne- that's all that's necessary. In fact, some of the worst investors I've ever come across are people with PhDs in mathematics, engineering, physics, because they look for perfection. And perfection doesn't exist. The world's it's, dirty. It's, yeah, that's really interesting perspective to have from your side of the fence because I see the same thing with property. Everyone's looking for like... The perfect, you know, and they get they get they get in their own way, and I'm like, okay, look, here is here is the numbers, here's why it stacks up, and here's how it works, here's how it mm. works, right? And on that basis, is oh, but what if there's something better? What if we could? What if this? And what if that? And you know, oh, but there's a tree out the front, and it's like just whoa, 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 zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. So, mate, I want to ask you, I want to hit on a couple of things, right? Firstly, and we're going to talk about two things here. I want to, understand, I'm going to actually, I'm going to ask you first. Trading, right? So your big thing is trading, which indicates yes. getting in and getting out of markets. Now, the big thing that I believe in real estate is, look, selling has its place, but buying and holding is really your best, hmm. your best bet. So how do you how do you how do you balance buying and holding and getting compound growth versus getting yeah. in and out of markets? It, it comes down to how you break up the timeframes. For example. My weekly equity system, the system that buys shares, trades only once a week. And its aim is that once or twice a year, it will pick an instrument that is, let's say, starting at a dollar, and in three or four years' time, is four or five. And it's that continual process of just managing the trade as that goes along. Because one of the great problems people have, it may or may not come as a surprise to people, but the reason the majority of people trade is actually not to get wealthy. It's actually to be entertained. And that, that's why they're constantly that's that's why they're constantly looking at their phones, that's why they've constantly got their dealing screens open. My weekly system I don't look at during the week because I don't have the bandwidth to be bothered. 
And that's not that's not what it's there for. It's designed to simply take a position, and so long as the trend holds for me, I'm still in the position. So and okay. that's the only requirement. From a performance basis, then, right? So if you've got one type of trader who's <coughs> like, I'm gonna I'm gonna day trade, right? I'm in and I'm out and I'm in and I'm out and I'm in and I'm out. And they're active, right? And they're and they're hyped up and they love it and they're like, ah, they're trying to monitor every movement. Versus you, who's like, I'll do a trade a week, performance wise. Who's who 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 does it better? Like, what well, do you outperform or do they I outperform? Win. Or if every segment of a trading system has its place for each individual, yeah. Because and in some in some in some ways it's split along generational lines, in that that used to be me, and I think that has a place. I still I still have a system that trades every day, but it's it's not the main focus of what I do because it doesn't need to be. And there's this old thing of it's paradox: the more you trade, the less you actually make. You will make money. But you're not going to make as much money over the long term. And, and trading is, or let's use the word investing. Let's use the word investing. Investing is, on average, over time. And people get the time component. Time plays a part. The person who buys a share at a dollar and then sells it at a dollar five a week later feels really good about themselves. They, you know, they think they've done really well. But the problem is they then come back in three years' time and see the stock that they sold at $1.05 is now 5 or $6, and they could have continued to buy along the way. We, we had a student many, many years ago who bought a stock called Aquarius Platinum at, I think, $0.05. Cents. He sold them at 75 He made 50%. Two years later, he looked at them. They were $10, and he had 100,000 of them. Well. Yeah, that was one of the words he used as well. <laughs> so there was a few, I'm sure there was a few. <laughs> there, there, there was quite a few in front of that as well. And that's, that's the thing. The, you tailor the game to suit yourself. And so my systems are divided into weekly, which requires no bandwidth. I trade a small number of commodities, and it is a small number on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And that that suits my needs, that does what I need it to do. But it's the longer-term system that makes the most money over time. So why do you do the short-term trades? Fun. It pays for the cars. Fair enough. Fair enough. So it, it, it's, very, it's very much, it's like having a diversified business in that, you know, the asset growth in the business is owning the business, but you've still got to eat along the way. And so the business still has to turn things over. Totally, totally. The, the, the trading in and out and selling and, and all of that kind of stuff is very similar to flipping, right? When people buy a yeah, property. That, that'd be the appropriate term for your world. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, okay, so you make more money if you buy and hold, but sometimes you've got to liquidate your assets in order to release the capital to give you, to give you what you need, unless, of course, you have a good yield. Yeah, and, and that yield plays a part because we, we have a thing called dividend reinvestment plans. Yeah whereby what happens is companies can pay you a dividend. They'll either pay it as cash, which mistakenly people take. And if you don't need it, don't take it. People feel good when they get a dividend check because it looks like free money. You are much better off using the dividend reinvestment plan because what happens is the, the DRP increases the size of your position at a discount. So you're actually giving the compounding you're getting a little bit of a kick along. And I, I, I do an exercise for people when I say, look, let, let's assume that for whatever reason you bought Commonwealth Bank when it first listed and you've held it ever since. Let, let's say you were given them. With one, you take the dividend as cash, you spend it. The other one, you take the dividend as a dividend reinvestment plan. The difference in performance between the two at the end point is staggering. It, it's like chalk and cheese. And it amazes and mortifies people when they actually see how much wealth they've given away. Mm. And it, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of leakage in investing that people permit. Sounds like, it sounds like the biggest issue is uh, not so much knowledge, but it's more about like discipline, right? It so- is. It, 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 but that's, that if you look at successful people, let's look at any project you've undertaken, 
let's call let's say weight loss. Who succeeds? The people who are disciplined. Who succeeds at getting fit and running the triathlon, the marathon? It's the person who continues to get up at five o'clock in the morning and train. People in business are disciplined. It's like here in Melbourne, people swim outside at Brighton and they do it year round. Now the bay is freezing, like it's so cold. But there are people who swim in the outdoor bars every day of every year. They did an interesting thing and they do so in the dark which is a little bit nerve-wracking. They performed an interesting survey of them years ago. The majority are self-made millionaires. Fair, fair, fair income. That's, yeah, that's They're just disciplined. They, they have a thing that says, I'm going to do this. And it's not, I'm going to do this in the future. I'm doing this now. And here's my plan to continue doing it. This is the problem with any form of longer-term trend following, which is what I do. It's getting people just to leave the damn trading system alone. Just, just The share will go in the direction it wants to go of its own accord. It will do it whether you're involved or not. And the more you interfere, the lower your return will be. If, you, if it hasn't hit your stop and you have not been told to leave... Just leave it alone. Don't 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 play with the damn thing. Yeah. So how much do you how much do you how much do you think mindset plays a role in uh, in look? We're not just talking about we're not just talking about shares trading or or commodities trading or anything like that. We're talking about anything like in any market in any asset well, class, real estate, all of that stuff. What, well, how, let, what do you let, think? Yeah. Let, let me use an example. Let, let me go back to my very very early days when I was a bouncer. I used to work in a variety of places that I would technically term shitholes. They were appalling. And I'd generally be paired with uh, an islander, generally a Maori. Now, I'm fairly big. I stand almost 6'4", weigh 110 kilos. I'm not small. These blokes were like Easter Island statues. They were enormous. And one night I was paired with a guy who was much smaller and let's, let's just say, and I, in, in these modern times, I really don't know how to put it. Let's just say he had the demeanour of Liberace. And I thought, I'm going to get really hurt tonight because this guy is... Uh, there, there used to be a show on television in the 70s, Are You Being Served? And, and it had this character, Mr Humphreys, who was always flouncing around. And he was very much like that. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a really, really bad night. I'm not all that comfortable. The People I worked with often entered bouncing with the mindset of every problem was solved by violence mm. because that was the only way they had. This fellow, and he was slightly older too, he would have been in his 40s, which is a bit odd. His approach was different. His mindset was every confrontation can be solved by listening. And once you start to listen, you understand the problem and you understand their problem. And the two mindsets were so completely different mm -hmm. and it was the most peaceful night I'd ever had. Mindset and the way you approach a problem dictates how that problem will go. And the problem is that most people have completely the wrong mindset for whatever they're attempting to do, whether it be lack of discipline, lack of confidence, impulsiveness, an inability to, as you were saying before, understand the long-term power of the model. If your head's not screwed on correctly, then you run into problems. And these problems are amplified in trading because you get so much noise. You open the screen, you're being told second to second what something's worth. Okay, so, so you're in an environment where you're getting uh, screamed at, where your senses are getting screamed at by all of these different, uh, you know, sen sensory overload and different all of that kind of stuff. You've been doing this for a long time. What do you do? Or like, what have you, over the last, say, 30 years or, or so, or whatever it is, what, what have you done to, to, to protect, to stand guard yeah. at the door of your mind? What, what habits or actions do you take? Yeah. I, I, th I think I'm very lucky in that a lot of my background, without actually knowing it, taught me how to deal with these situations. Mm. I came from combative sports. I'd been a bouncer, which is very, very stressful. You're dealing with people's emotions all the time. You need to know how to down-regulate your own emotions so you actually don't become part of the problem. If you're detached from the problem, then 
you have a capacity to solve the problem. And it is that detachment that you need. A lot of people can't downregulate their emotions. And it's a, it's a physiological response. You get what sort of uh, is termed an adrenaline dump. It's that feeling that yeah. it's, it's almost like an electric shock. And the problem with that is your IQ drops dramatically. Like it just goes out the window. You're prone to being impulsive because you resort to very pattern behavior. But once you learn to take, there's a thing, there's a thing in yoga, which is you look for the pause. And I try and get everybody before they make any decision, before they do anything, stop, take a deep breath, find the time in the pause. Don't be reflexive. Yes, you can react, but reacting is actually thinking, not just being knee-jerk. If you introduce a pause into your thinking, then all of a sudden things become easier, even driving around on the road. Uh, You can avoid 99% of all road rage things by just taking a deep breath and just going, oh, yeah. The problem goes away. Mm. Don't add to the problem. People like to... Look, I won't say they like to add to their problems, but it seems to be their default setting. Instead of how can I make it better, what can I do to make it worse? Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting pattern, isn't it? So ha- having, having been in this game for a while and having, having uh, so you, you basically said you've got to go on a sabbatical, an, an ongoing sabbatical from your 30s, right? So... How do you define success? What's, what's, the thing, what's the thing that actually makes it all worthwhile? Time. What do you because mean? We, we had the conversation before that time is finite. It is. Every, everyone has a bucket of time. It's how you have the capacity and freedom to use what's in that bucket. When you're constrained by others... Your time is not your own. I own my time. I decide when to get up. I decide when to have breakfast. After this, for example, I will head down to my local cafe, sit outside, have breakfast. My time's my own. And my, de- my definition of success is being able to control your time. And once you can do that in some way, shape or form, I think you've gone a long way to, look, I won't say, say, solving the mysteries of life, but you've given yourself the capacity to enjoy all the things that life brings. I think you pointed out something. You said one word there, I think we summed it up, control. And that's the thing. Again, we come back to that thing. People want to be the hero of their own narrative, but they don't have the control over the narrative. Someone else writes the story for them. And, And that it's obviously immensely distressing because when I used to catch the train into town uh, when I was still involved in broking and even going in later on to meet lawyers, you would see people and they look friggin' miserable. Now, granted, it's 7.30 in the morning in the middle of a Melbourne winter and it's not the best place in the world, but they all look like they were being shipped off to the gulag. Mm. And, and, and I, you didn't really want to be that person. No, ab- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. I think that's what most people are riling against. They just don't know how to do it, which yeah, is part that, of what and, we're both here for, right? Yeah, and that, that's the thing. It, it's, and if there is one thing that has perhaps emerged from COVID, it is that people understand the need for their own autonomy. Yeah. What, what control do I, What control can I get back? And even the notion of working from home is a control aspect. You've rested some of your time back. And the people I've spoken to in business who have people working from home say, strangely enough, they're much more efficient and they seem to be happier. Totally. It's really changing markets for in real estate as well because people are now realizing that they don't need to live in the middle of Sydney. They can go live up the coast. They can go, yeah. you know, like they can do, and they're having a better quality of life already, which is really interesting. It's really interesting. And, and that, that's very much, uh, I was reading a piece on uh, real estate in the US around Silicon Valley is now yeah. or had been unaffordable simply because the tech giants had moved in. They paid extremely well. They squeezed everybody out. Even the people who went to work for the tech giants could not really afford to live there. What they've now realised is that instead of trying to, you know, 
scrimp and save and find somewhere to live in Silicon Valley, they can now live anywhere in the US and telecommute. Yep. And it's if there is a revolution or anything interesting to come from it, it might be that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So one final question before we wrap up. Someone who's got a depth of breadth of experience like yours, where do you see the economy in a year from now? Ah, this, this is my great advantage over everyone else. I have no idea, but I also don't care because my, my systems don't care. And that, that removes my need to make a prediction, but it also removes my investment in the prediction. And I default to, I believe it was JP Morgan, the, the, the great investment banker from uh, very early last century. Someone said to him, they said, where do you see the market at some point in the future? And he said, look, the market then will be the same as today, but different. And, and that, that's, that's the good thing is that all of our markets are always different and, and difference provides opportunity and opportunity opens the door for you to make a decision that may or may not be profitable. If everything was the same all the time, there's no risk, no risk, no possibility of return. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, mate, I've, I really enjoyed the uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's brought a lot of uh, good insights into not only the psychology around trading, but also um, you know how to how to approach it in a general sense. So, mate, how can people reach out to you if they want to if they want to learn more? If they become if they've become inspired, uh, if they're if they're currently a bouncer. Uh, or an academic, and they want to, and they want to become like you, out. and they want to go, and, <laughs> they want to go sit around and have cafe breakfasts in the morning. How can you help them do that? Easiest thing to do: come to the website tradinggame.com.au, uh, subscribe, and when you subscribe, you get a thing called the trading plan template. It's like a business plan. It says to you if you want to trade or invest, these are the things you're going to have to know. These are the steps you're going to have to follow. It's also accompanied by an e-course that comes out which talks about various aspects of trading. So you can find me at tradinggame.com.au. You can follow me on Twitter, just Trading Game. I'm in LinkedIn on my under my personal name, but I find LinkedIn just to be really Facebook for people with a job. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 I don't know why it exists, to be honest. Uh, and so that's the easiest way to find me. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, mate, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you your insights and uh, let's do it again. Absolutely. Awesome.